Just yes, say yes, embrace. Let's go. Hey Ben. Yeah. How are you? Hi. Episode six ninety nine of Effectively Wild, daily <laughs> podcast from Baseball Perspectives. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of Grantland. Hey Ben. Hello. Brought to you by the Play Index at Baseball Reference, which we'll get into. Hey, real quick. Mm-hmm. And then we can do less quick. But I'm. Uh, I noticed that there's a debate about left-handed catchers going on on the Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And somebody says. At youth levels, there's often a single catcher's mitt and numerous fielding gloves. The catcher's mitt, if it's to be one shared by a team for long-term use, would typically be right-handed, so not many left-handed kids play catcher. My understanding is that actually Little League mandates, Little League the body, mandates that every team, or maybe it's just some Little Leagues. I know that the the local Little League in my area mandates that every team have a left-handed catcher's glove. So I think that this comment is misinformed. Or, I mean, it's a reasonable sub, uh, supposition that he makes, but I think it's not true. Okay. You could register for Facebook and leave a comment. So, anything else to talk about? <laughs> I have a... Uh, I wanted to also talk about this softball player being charged for hitting the batter. Yeah, we got a few emails about past instances of people trying to prosecute for baseball crimes. So, this one is particularly relevant uh, because it's current and because it's so close to a thing that, that we talked about, although also key differences. So this is, you might have seen this, people might have seen this. I'll just read. Penn State Altoona softball player is discussing a plea deal with prosecutors on assault charges for hitting a batter with a pitch during practice. Faces one misdemeanor, simple assault and harassment count. Uh, The sophomore is accused of hitting her teammate in retaliation at a practice. Police said that the pitcher suspected her teammate snitched on a coach for allegedly violating the school's alcohol policy. The victim was warned by a teammate that, quote, everyone knows she was the whistleblower when she arrived for practice. The friend told her she should leave, but she stayed and took her turn at the plate. So, in the one hand, uh, and so now she's, she got charged and, you know, maybe she'll uh, plea out, okay? So on the one hand, this is very, very similar to the thing that never gets charged, which is a pitcher who is upset with a hitter uses a spherical object thrown with great force to uh, enforce a sort of uh, makeshift discipline, a kind of a a vigilante discipline, right? Mm -hmm. So that is uh, very similar to baseball pitchers throwing at baseball players, which happens constantly. However, also key difference that this was outside of the established uh, precedent. This was not team against team. This did not happen in the heat of combat, of competition, which we accept the heat of competition uh, requires a kind of a great deal of adrenaline and intensity that sometimes leads to this self-disciplining mechanisms. Uh, This was very different. This was a teammate uh, taking advantage of another teammate who did not presumably have to accept the same level of of implied risk that uh, a hitter faces during actual competition. And that this was a very deliberate, premeditated, and uh, previous. Well, I don't know if this matters because it doesn't seem to matter in baseball. But premeditated and and kind of forewarned assault. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out where on the spectrum this is. If this is closer to the uh, normal way of hitting at batters, or if it's closer to punching a guy in a bar. Which where on the spectrum is this closer to? It uses the same weapon as the throwing at a batter in a game. 
And yet, in cultural ways, it's very, very different. It, it seems like in cultural ways it would be like going to this girl's apartment after the game and hitting her with a pickle jar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a tough call. It's, uh, it's... And the reason that it matters is we're trying to we're sort of trying to figure out which way the law is going on this, and if in 20 years it is more likely that that there will be more charges brought for the type of behavior that we currently see accepted as part of the game. I would think there would be more. Like if we're we've got what a hundred and we've got a few hundred years until we are until Starfleet is here and there is no violence of any kind, right? So in in Starfleet world, you would probably not be able to be in a batter, I would think. Although there are still still some baseball fans around in certain episodes, but did Star wait? Did Starfleet impose these rules though that would imply that i don't progression is starfleet the result of or the cause yeah starfleet is the result of i think and maybe maybe partially the cause but it it's a peaceful world everyone gets gets along on earth at least at that point so if we if you think we ever are going to get there if you think we'll ever have a utopian future where people get along and don't fight then at some point on the progression towards that you would think that violence in sports would be also heavily discouraged or eradicated to the extent that the sport that playing the sport itself allows like you might allow actual hit by pitches because there's no way to legislate against that really unless you send the player up there in you know full body armor or sumo suit or something you can't stop a pitcher from hitting a batter but you could stop them from doing it intentionally or make the penalties severe so i would say that we we get there at some point. We're on the way there. I think that it's. I think at some point, with with the routineness of nine, ninety nine mile an hour fastballs, I think it, at some point, prob presumably, probably, we will have the black swan event of a hitter getting killed in front of everybody. Uh-huh. And I think from that point on, penalties will be extremely strict. I don't know if the penalties will anticipate that or not, but I think once we see a person die, it's going to change things. I think that we'll we'll get really dark in a hurry. And so I, I don't know that it's going that way on its own though. I'm not sure. I also don't know what Starfleet is. And <laughs> I, I, my future is my anticipated future is, is that of Deltron 3030. You and I are in different timelines and Deltron 3030 doesn't, it, it's darker. It doesn't seem to have a, a clear stance on the existence of violence, but it needs a savior. Deltron 3030's future is in need of a savior. Mm-hmm. So that would imply that there's still conflict. Uh, and also everyone, wants to be an MC. <laughs> well, our manager wants to be one. Yeah. So, uh, I I have to think about what Deltron's stance would be on penalties for throwing <laughs> at baseball baseball players. I think I agree. I think that we're going toward more toward more charges. And so I would think that this would th- probably this is closer on the spectrum to the de facto carve out uh, behavior that currently doesn't get prosecuted mm-hmm. and suggest that we are moving toward that sort of thing in some cases being prosecuted. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we got an email from Matthew who thinks that we are missing something, giving short shrift to one aspect of the Royals all-star voting situation. He says he's a Yankees, or he's a, he, he's a Yankees fan. He doesn't usually vote for all-star games except when he's at the stadium, etc. However, this year, he made an exception. Upon hearing news that the Royals were dominating the ballots, I immediately started filling out ballots with Royals straight down the ticket. What a fantastic opportunity to protest the fact that this exhibition game counts for something. 
Anecdotally, I can tell you most of my friends, even some who do not like baseball and none of whom are Royals fans, are doing the same. There seem to be four main reasons for doing this. One, to show the All-Star game for the farce that it is. Two, I have some friends who are fans of good NL teams who think it means more of a chance of getting home field for the World Series. Three, they honestly want to see what Ned Yost does. (laughs) Four, it's pretty funny. So in conclusion, I think this may have started as a genuine support from a devoted fan base who's excited to have a good team for the first time in a long time, but it has been sustained by protest ballots, sabotage, and people who love farce. That sounds plausible. Yeah, I think it's plausible. I, I did not, I didn't embrace that personally, like as I talked about, um, this didn't quite reach the level of cleverness that wanted to make me join a, uh, a rebellious, uh, uh, kind of uh, mischievous movement, mm-hmm. um, but I totally get the instinct. And and if it was, I mean, there, it could have. Uh, it it definitely gets partway there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that, there's probably some of that. I don't know though. We're probably overrating how many of that there is. I think that there are nine people who get offended by that sort of thing. I think the silent majority actually does not like vandalism and pranks uh-huh i don't know what it's a it's a protest of the fact that the game counts i guess except the the effect of this is probably not going to be i would think it's more likely that it will lead to some change in the player selection process than that it will lead to a change in the game counting for something mlb oh. seems to like the fact that it counts for something i would expect it to just move to player voting which will make people even more mad or just stricter security or something on the vote voting totals, which would be probably a good thing. I don't know. It was I did a radio hit yesterday, and it was one of those times where they tell you that you're gonna come on to talk about one thing, and they mm-hmm. they only mention the one thing. So I was going on to talk about Max Scherzer, and I wrote an article about Max Scherzer. I was all ready to talk about Max Scherzer. Yeah. And then there were like five other topics that at any point the producer could have sent, you know, a five, five second email. Hey, we're going to also talk about these other things. You might want to have an answer because you're going to be talking about these other things in front of lots of people listening. Maybe you'd like to be prepared, but no. So but did this, they at least ask you about Max Scherzer? The last question, it was like, we've got time for one more, uh, Max Scherzer. <laughs> <laughs> there were like five questions. It was like Pete Rose. All-star voting, David Ortiz, is he a Hall of Famer? It was just all these things that I had to come up with answers for off the top of my head. So one thing they asked me was whether I thought Rob Manfred would do like a best interest of baseball intervention and invalidate the Royals' results and whether I would be in support of that. I don't know what I said. I said something. (laughs) Something wishy-washy. It's a good thing that you weren't prepared for any of these questions, because if your responses had been slightly longer, you wouldn't have gotten to Max Scherzer. <laughs> That's right. Well, we're out of time. <laughs> they, they, yeah. Radio producers, I don't get it. Like bringing Matt Damon on at the end of Jimmy Kimmel. Just, <laughs> well, let's ask you about Max Scherzer. Oh, we got to go to. <laughs> don't they? Don't they want the guest to be good? No, I don't know. All right, radio producers. Okay, and then there were some comments about the Bronson Arroyo Tuki Toussaint deal from Dave Stewart this time, uh, who said that he is aware of the criticism. And so his explanation is interesting. Um, so this is from a Ken Rosenthal article, and Ken writes, others say that if the Diamondbacks wanted to trade Toussaint, they should have done it for players, particularly when they recently signed a new TV contract with Fox Sports Arizona for more than $1.5 billion. Here's Stewart. 
The truth is, we did not know what Tukey's value would be if we shopped him. There is a lot of speculation on that. People are assuming it would have been better, but we don't know. There was an opportunity to make a deal that gave us more flexibility today as well as next year. We took that opportunity. It's tough to say we could have gotten more. He was drafted at number 16, given $2.7 million. In my opinion, that's his value. So he's saying that they didn't call anyone else, basically. <laughs> right? Like, this is always the... This is always the suspicion when a team makes a move and people say they didn't get enough. It's always, well, they could have gotten more from some other team, but then we say, well, they must have checked with other teams. They didn't just make this deal without checking around first. But Dave Stewart is explicitly saying that they didn't do that. They just took the first offer. And he's also saying that the value of Toussaint is what he was drafted for, which is, I mean... Maybe his stock has fallen. He's he's making the case that, you know, people are saying that Toussaint throws 96 and they haven't actually seen him throw 96 since he was drafted. So maybe he's not the prospect that he was when he was drafted. I don't know. But the fact that his bonus was $2.7 doesn't mean he's worth $2.7 on the open market. He's worth much more than that. It's the, or the draft. I mean, yeah, or he could be much less. If, if you're saying that we've reassessed him since he's been in our organization and he's He's not good. Yeah. That's still, maybe he's worth $40. Who knows? But 2.7 is completely arbitrary. Right. That's, he was worth more at the time, or he was, it artificially, the draft artificially depresses what amateur players make. So if, if there's a loophole, if there's a Scott Boris who comes along and makes one of them a free agent, they make, you know, 10 times more or something. So if they're accepting that as his value, that doesn't make any sense. And if they, it's an interesting defense of the trade. When people are saying he's worth more. Well, we don't we don't know if he's worth more because we didn't ask. <laughs> like, what if he had drafted you? Yeah. Like he drafted you and then gave you two point seven million, and then someone and then you know like he's like, well, you're clearly worth two point seven million. That's what we paid you. Yeah. I, Doesn't <laughs> any. I I don't get it. Yeah, and he's. Not saying that it, it definitely is because they wanted money for the trade on the deadline. He sort of says that they wanted financial flexibility and maybe they'll make a move. And he's, he's like, uh, you know, he, he says, uh, it's a surprise to everybody, not just the general public, but also to us that we're playing as well as we are and that we're in the circumstance we're in. What circumstance? Like 500? A little below 500? Like extreme long shot to make the playoffs? Yeah. That's, the, so, that's so, what we right, expected. So. So let's continue to give him the benefit of the doubt and, and ask the question that we always ask in this situation when a GM gaffs. Who's he, uh, it, should we assume he's talking to somebody other than us at this point? Is there, is it conceivable that there's subtext to these comments that is somehow important for him to get across? And is it possible that he's speaking to an audience different than us? Is it possible that he's actually just speaking like he's, he wants his owner to read these quotes for some reason, or is he signaling something? Can you imagine a way he's of signaling to potential trade partners that he's bad at trading? <laughs> they should all <laughs> they should is, all offer him something. Yeah, he is he is the uh, he's hustling them. I guess so. Except I don't I don't know that it actually works because he literally will take the first offer, but <laughs> I don't. I don't know. It's... I wonder. So this is always that thing in fantasy where one team makes a horrible, horrible trade, and you're like, okay, that's the mark. But you don't want to do like two minutes after the trade gets announced because that looks suspicious. But you, I definitely want to get to him before the other ten teams start making trades with mm-hmm. him. Like 
you want to, so I wonder how many, basically I wonder how many calls Dave Stewart has gotten in the last two days. If it's, or four days or whatever. Is it zero calls? Is it 18 calls? How many people have offered him trades, do you think, since since Saturday? <laughs> if this happened in a fantasy league, people would be talking to the commissioner about invalidating it. That is not my question. <laughs> no, I How don't know. How many trade offers do you suppose? I'm going to say more than he would have otherwise. All right. All right. So this actually an email show, although you wouldn't know it so far. I guess Play we've read emails. <laughs> Play the next. All right. Wait. Let's Let's do an actual question first. So, Lee wants to know, in your opinion, when is the appropriate time to start talking about a perfect game? When someone texts me to say Marco Estrada is perfect through six, my response is, eh, call me when he's perfect through seven. Boy, that is, that is a, that guy goes, eh, too excited very quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I could see if it, if he's like, it's the fourth, call me when it's eight and two thirds. But the difference between the sixth and the seventh, like, from space, they look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Do you, I have an answer. I have a personal answer. I mean, there's a personal answer. They're all personal. Do you have a personal answer to this? Well, there's a, there's probably a statistical answer to this. What is the, do you know offhand? I feel like I've read this or looked this up or something, but the, the odds that a guy who has a no hitter or whatever through eight actually makes it, it's, I think we, that we, it, we talked about this. Game, for a perfect game, I think it's, you have to go eight and a third before yeah. you're likely. Right. And no hitters are obviously easier than perfect game, but still, I mean, just if you had to guess based on what I just told you, it'd be, you would probably guess like seven and two thirds. Mm-hmm. Although it feels more, and, and the behavior of hitters does change. I think somebody else has shown that, that the behavior of hitters does change. The behavior of umpires changes. You I, Yeah, I, I showed that a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, uh, in the ninth inning of no hitters, the strike zone expands and umpires start making more generous calls to the pitcher and hitters start chasing more, which either it could be because they know that the umpire is going to expand the zone, or it could be because they're desperate to get a hit, or it could be good because the pitcher is throwing outside the zone more, whatever, but that's what tends to happen. Yeah, and then I wrote about Matt King's perfect game, you might remember. Do you? Mm, not yet. <laughs> not yet? <laughs> you, if you prompt me, I might remember. Oh, <laughs> I wrote about how you could, um, if you watched him, uh, very closely, you could tell that he also was extremely nervous, that you could see it in subtle ways, and then you could see it in not-so-subtle ways. The spread of his pitches became much larger uh, as as he got closer to the end, and he threw a few of the worst pitches of the night, like he missed by like four feet on a couple pitches. And so there's also, you know, there there is some element of the pitcher having to deal with nerves too. So So I don't know if those cancel out or what, but it feels to me like I, at this point in my life, I feel like a guy who is six or seven innings, I almost feel like, oh, well, that's another, that happened. That's done. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and it's, it's not that, but it, it sort of feels like that. But, uh, but who cares? That doesn't, whether it's likely to happen or not, doesn't necessarily have to influence your, your viewpoint. I mean, I watch, for instance, I watch a John Carlos Stanton at bat because I want to see him hit a dinger, but he's not likely to hit a dinger. He's these days. Like, he's pretty likely. No, he's like seven percent likely. Yeah. That's not fifty percent. It's seven percent. Mm-hmm. And and it's only like probably half that still that it's going to be a aesthetically pleasing dinger. Well, maybe. <laughs> uh, so uh, so it doesn't. It's not like fifty percent half. Unless that's how you make your decision. Is that how you make your decision when it's fifty percent likely? 
Well, you, can't, you can't deal with the disappointment <laughs> seeing a no-hitter be broken up? I'd say after seven. I mean, I don't know. What's the the problem if someone tells you that it's happening? You can It doesn't hurt you. You can choose to tune in or not unless, I mean, you don't have to drop everything and go watch this baseball game. But I would, I would want to know after seven, I suppose, just because if you told me after eight, then I might miss some of the ninth. <laughs> so... Um, tell me after seven when it's likely, and yep. then I'll have time to to watch. I I currently won't flip over to see a no hitter in progress, even if it's eight and two thirds. Mm-hmm. Like I'm I'm just not interested in no hitters. Um, so there, uh, so that's a harder question for me to answer. Unless I have some reason. If it's Jose Fernandez, or if it's like one of the eight guys that I'm already really predisposed to want to watch, or if you tell me that there's something spectacular about it. Like, at this point, probably if Max Scherzer has one going, I'll probably click over to it because, you know, like, insane. Uh, but generally, it needs to be a perfect game for me to to change my behavior. Now, as to a perfect game, I have two answers. One is, if it is a game that I'm already watching, uh, if I'm watching a game with you or something, or, I'm, I'm, you know, like, I will notice a perfect game in progress through three. If you make it through the order the first time, I think it is fine to comment to another person following that game. Perfect game through three. Now, you don't have to, you're not changing anybody's behavior. You're not doing anything. You're just noting, well, that he's a third of the way. And I, and I feel like part of that is if you watch a perfect game, it, it you don't want to not notice it until the end. You want to enjoy the experience. Uh, ideally, you would be able to enjoy it from the first batter on. And every batter that you don't acknowledge that something is happening is part of this history that is wasted. Because in retrospect, the first batter was just as important as the 27th, and you were just too dumb to notice. Mm-hmm. And so I like to notice early. Uh, I, When I was a kid, one time Scott Gereltz uh, got through the first inning perfect, you know, the first, and I went and I told my dad, Scott, Scotty's got a perfect game through, through one, I think he's going to do it. And Scotty made it until one out in the ninth when Paul O'Neill broke it up. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you, that was the most fun I've had following a game. I mean, that was to, to, to then see the second and feel like there was weight to the second. Cause I had, I had declared, you know what? We're doing this. We're doing history right now. <laughs> Everybody come with me. It's a shared delusion, but we're doing it together. And, uh, and I really enjoyed that. And so I don't see any harm in acknowledging very early if you're watching a game, he's perfect. Now, as for the public announcement or the, hey, everybody, come look over here. Again, just talking perfect games, I think six is good. Six seems right. You've faced everybody twice, and it really feels like the last leg because you've got to go through the lineup one more time. Mm-hmm. The other the other thing about noticing it after six is that the best hitters are coming up. And once you get past those, then it becomes much more likely. You know you're going to have seven, eight, nine in the last inning, you know? And so, uh, so it, in a lot, in a lot of ways, the crucial inning is the seventh or maybe the eighth, seventh and eighth for those. So, uh, so to restate, third inning or really as early as you want, but third inning for a game we're watching, sixth inning for a game I'm not watching. Okay. And before play index, there's one other perfect game related question. It is from Elliot and he wants to know the play that broke up the perfect game, the Marco Estrada perfect game on Wednesday was a slow grounder that Logan Forsyth hit to Josh Donaldson. JD barehanded it and made the throw, narrowly missing the out at first. Would JD have been more apt to airmail the tough throw, or I guess would he have been 
smarter to airmail the tough throw over first, take the error, and keep the no-hitter intact? Wouldn't that be 80-grade gamesmanship? Would an error even be granted on the play? Should he have made an error intentionally to preserve a no-hitter? Didn't... And would it work? This, this was the Estrada game? Yeah. Didn't Estrada have a perfect game, though? He did, yeah. So, so he's he's saying, should he have yeah. made an error, which would have to, at least I, preserved the no-hitter? I think that I think that you got to go for the out in that situation because I mean, just even in the ga- even in the the scenario that we're entertaining where this is realistic that he would do this, even there, I still think you got to take the long shot out for the the long shot for the out. The perfect game is just much more valuable than the no-hitter. Mm-hmm. So you you go for the out now. Let's say he had just a no-hitter going. I also have thought that at times. I've thought, ah, oh, you know, can the fielder, like, because really, if you, well, let me think. I, I've Another thing I've thought is that uh, in a no-hitter, you could argue that a pitcher should walk the leadoff hitter every inning. Mm-hmm. And then that, because that way he gets, if he gets a ground ball, he gets two outs yeah. for it. And so he has fewer outs to get. He has to get fewer hitters out. Plus it gives him, it gives some of his fielders an escape valve on some plays in the hole where they can get the force. Uh, where they might not be able to get the uh, out at first. And so if you really, like, if you really wanted to, yes, that would improve your chance of a no-hitter, but this comes down to Russell Carlton's thesis that Americans don't like the appearance of trying too hard. Mm-hmm. And the, I don't think this would be something that would get a lot of respect, and I think it would probably backlash. Mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah, I, I thought I had something else, but I didn't. Okay. All right, yeah, I agree. That would be a... Uh... There'd be an asterisk, asterisk attached to that if you could, if you could determine that it was intentional. Mm-hmm. If you made it look good, it could work. Yeah. Okay. Play index. All right. Uh, before I do play index, I just want to do a quick little preamble about no hitters again because I don't, I, I, I am not, I, I don't want to be, I don't think of myself as a no hitter hater. I, I just, they don't, they don't emotionally move me. For I've seen a lot of them. Um, and I've chosen in my life to, to be more interested in high strikeout games than low hit games. And I do like a perfect game because the margin is ridiculously small and you could not nick a guy's elbow and there it goes. But I just, I, it's fine. I, I like that players get excited about no hitters. I like that other people like them. Enjoy the game, pay money, do the thing. Okay. I have no problem with no hitters. They just don't do it for me. That's all. Mm-hmm. Now. I will say this about no hitters. They're a perfectly legitimate achievement. It's not, and this is a preamble because hitting for the cycle, which I also hate, that one I genuinely hate. That is a stupid thing, okay? <laughs> hitting for the cycle is stupid. I'm not against fun. I love your no hitters. Cycles are stupid. They're stupid, okay? A no hitter is saying, hey, I allowed no hits. You can't do any better than that. Like, you could do better. But not as an alternative, you know? It's not like you make the choice to get a no-hitter at the expense of a perfect game. You just, you do a thing, and we determine that that thing is really good. Good enough to celebrate, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas a cycle is saying, you do a thing, but not too well. If you do it too well, it doesn't count anymore. It would be like if we ignored no-hitters, but celebrated two-hitters. Like... (laughs) Can you believe it? He threw a two-hitter. Oh, no, he only allowed one hit. Never mind. Right? That's the cycle. It's like, oh, he gets a home run. He gets a triple. Oh, he's halfway to the cycle. He gets a double. Oh, he's almost there. He gets it. Oh, he gets another double. Never mind. People like variety. It's It's the spice of life. 
stupid. I hate the cycle. I hate the cycle. How do you feel about being a triple short of it? A triple short of it. You got three hits. Solid. (laughs) Solid work. You got three hits. Good game like everybody else has a good game. Oh, you got a fourth hit. Good game like everybody else who has a good four-hit game. It is not special that these things clustered in a slightly unusual way. So this is why I'm going to talk about the cycle for a minute, okay? Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, if you get four hits and the cycle, which is ten total bases, or more if you get a fifth hit, but probably, you know, you get ten total bases, probably. Like, we know that four of your at-bats are dedicated to single, double, triple homer, right? Yes. So that's ten total bases. Now... If I told you that a guy got four hits and more, you know, more than ten total bases, well, a, you know, he got eleven. He got, he reached base just as many times, and he got more total bases. And because you don't know that they're necessarily single, double, triple homers, they could be four homers. He could have sixteen total bases. He could have fourteen total bases. He has eleven or more. Significantly better, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So I go to play index and I look up all the cycles in history. There have been 243 that show up on play index. And I wanted to see how often a team wins when one of its players hits for the cycle. So I look up all the games in which a hitter hit for the cycle and the team won, and the number is 207. And I look up all the games in which a player hit for the cycle and lost, and his team lost, and it's 36. So that means they win 85.2% of their games. You hit for the cycle, you are 85.2%. Now, that doesn't quite mean that you added 35.2% to your team's chances because you're more likely to hit for the cycle if you get a lot of plate appearances and your team, so your team might have already been, you know, scoring a ton, mm-hmm. uh, in which makes it more possible for you to hit. But let's just say, all right, 35.2-ish percent, uh, to, that's, that's what you move the needle. Good job. Okay. So then I did, I looked for four or more hits, which is what a cycle is, and 11 or more total bases. So, better game. These are these would generally be better games. And I looked up the winning percentage. Now remember, we're at 85.2 for the cycle. So 11 or more total bases? Mm-hmm. 82.9. <laughs> <laughs> I can't figure this out. So then I do the same thing for 12 or more, and it's 85.2. It's exactly the same. So somehow, somehow hitting for the cycle somehow is magically worth Two total bases. <laughs> so what is the number of 11 and 12 total bases games? Uh, 11 is 955. Hmm. And 12 is 460. I see. Well, so uh, <laughs> I guess there aren't that many cycles, so it's small sample. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Probably is though, right? I mean, there's no probably, there's no reason you know, why a cycle should be better unless it like energizes the team or demoralizes the pitcher or something. There's only three reasons, and one of them, the third one, is pretty unconvincing. Uh, there's three possibilities. One is that I didn't look at this, but because it takes a cycle is kind of harder to get, yeah, even though it's not as good, and so it's possible that more of the cycles took place in more plate appearances. You can get your four hits and 11 plate appear- uh, eleven or more total bases in any, basically any four, like, say, extra base hits, or like a single, two homers, and a double, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so maybe on average, the cycles took more plate appearances. And so there was a, there was a sort of a selection bias here where teams that were scoring more were more likely to lead to cycles already. Yeah, I think I, just I because think it, I, yeah, I've got another one, I think probably okay. one of your three is that you, this one, you're more likely to stop at first or whatever and get the cycle yeah. cross off that final box if you are already winning, if you have a comfortable exactly. lead. And exactly. yeah, so that's another so one. That, that, is my, that is my less convincing one. Okay. Because I, I've watched a lot of baseball. I've watched, I've seen some cycles, uh, but I've probably, how many baseball games have I watched, Ben, or listened to? Probably 2,500? Well, I can only confirm about 20 of those that I've seen you watch. Somewhere between 2,000 and 5,000 baseball games in my life. Mm-hmm. And I can't say that I've ever, if, if at, maybe once, maybe, but I mean, we're already talking about, you know, like your odds are, your odds are if you've done, Either of these, your team has probably got a ton of offense. So, I mean, really, how many of these cycles could have been engineered by the player? Do you think? Although, I mean, you maybe you don't stop, but maybe you aim for the single. Maybe you mark DeRosa up, you know, mm-hmm. and you just sort of, you know, you change your approach and just sort of ding one, or yeah, you run maybe, a little bit harder. Well, maybe run a little harder yeah. to stretch to a triple. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Okay, I can see a, a greater percentage of these being engineered by the player because. Uh, they want it, and you're more likely to do that. You're more likely to behave in an irrational way, or a you know an unnatural way if you're already winning. I think I'm still unconvinced. And I thought I had a third one, but I don't remember what it was. So I'll just say magic. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I'm gonna say that's not a statistically significant difference. By the way, 13 total bases does finally surpass the cycle. Oh, good. Okay. All right. So play index coupon code BP. Use it. Get the discounted price. $30 on a one-year subscription. All right. One more. Let's take John's question. If you could have your favorite team, A, switch their ballpark with any other teams, including their TV broadcast camera angle, StatCast cameras, everyone has those, weird Ray's medical camera that, that charts everyone's biomechanics, and concourse, and I suppose concessions would also be included in that. B, acquire any active player at their current contract status. C, steal away your preferred GM and manager. And they do have to, they don't have to come from the same team, John specifies. You, you clarified. You can pick someone who isn't employed. You can pick from multiple teams. D, have all their games called by Vince Scully. Which would you choose? So this, I'm a fan. You are a fan. This is and your this, favorite team. What we did ask for clarification on on one aspect, but on that one that you mentioned, but we didn't ask for clarification of does this have to be our actual favorite team? Because like the my favorite team has the best ballpark in the sport. Yeah, and so, really good broadcasters. And the best broadcasters probably as a group, or at least top two in the sport. And so now, if we're saying that I I am assigned an average team, yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. This will obviously change depending on which team is your favorite. So if I'm, I could, if any argument for the last one for changing the broadcasters, you basically would have, you'd be saying, well, look, I'm going to be a fan of this team for 30 or 40 years. That will be long past the six years that I get young, hot, phenom, 
It'll be past the eight years that I expect my GM will be there. Uh, it'll probably even outlast the ballpark. Uh, and so if I could say start at, start over at age eight with the perfect broadcaster, I could see the case for that because broadcasters have brought a huge amount of joy to my life. And specifically, Giants broadcasters have. And I, I listened to other teams broadcasters and there, in particular, there was a time where I wondered how many fans the Padres had lost by having the radio crew they had. It was just, it, you couldn't listen to their games. I, and I'm not sure if you can anymore. I haven't tried in a while, but they had this like one guy who was just so, so off-putting as a color guy on the radio. Uh, and you know, frankly, Jerry Coleman, legend, great guy for the game, but by the end, uh, his gaffes had become somewhat distracting and made it a little bit hard to, um, to follow the game. Uh, although he was, he was very likable, um, and, you know, had history and all that. Um, but, so I could, I could see as an investment in my life making a choice that I want the fan experience more than I care about an extra nine wins of marginal value. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that so in that case, if the if the solution wasn't say Vince Scully, but if I could have Vince Scully at 32, yeah, and you'd have to know that he was going to stick around until yeah. 85, exactly, and with that team and not change teams at any point, yeah, um, like I I mean I could see if I had a let's say I had an eight year old kid who was really into baseball and I thought baseball was going to be a part of her life for the rest of her life, I could see choosing Dave Fleming for her radio broadcast over, say, the best GM in the world. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a very difficult thing. Now, that said, we also don't know who the best GMs are. We're just mostly just faking it. I mean, I think we probably, like, would you take, if you could, you'd take Friedman, probably? Yeah, probably. Uh, I'd probably be more confident about my announcer choice than my GM choice. I'd be mo- way more confident about my announcer choice. Announcers, it's like scouting. You know within two games whether they're... Yeah, in the top tier or not, you don't know whether they're gonna stick around. Is the only problem. But I could sign like John Shop to a a lifetime contract or something. Oh my gosh, imagine. Yeah. yeah, just think like think about all of you people out there who have like mediocre announcers for at least one of the four spots in your announcing crew, TV and radio. Just think like John Shambi instead. Oh, <laughs> so baseball just got so much better for you, so much better. Oh, so. I that I was going to dismiss that possibly, but that's that might that's probably the one. Now at this point in my life that I'm I'm old, and I don't have that much baseball left ahead of me. Probably would take Mike Trout. <laughs> yeah. Would take I would say I would take Mike Trout over my favorite you know over a, a GM pick mainly because of you know what you wrote three years ago keeping up with the Freedmans. Uh, there are there are 28 GMs that I consider completely tolerable. I don't hate many GMs. Mm-hmm. Well, so what if you go to games a lot? What if you have season tickets? I mean, ballpark, if you're upgrading from one of the worst ballparks to the best ballpark. Do, yeah, but you're presupposing I have one of the worst. I, I might, I, we. Yeah, you have, have an average. Let's say I have the median. What is the median ballpark right now? <laughs> Kansas City, maybe? Yeah, Kansas City's nice. Um, yeah, they're all nice. It's weird. Philadelphia. I don't know. All right, so Cincinnati. Let's say Cincinnati is median. Mm. Is it worth upgrading? I mean, I don't have season tickets, Ben. I'm not. At, I'm never going to. Those yeah. are expensive, and I don't have the time. Yeah. So, so I'm not. I, I mean, I when I was a when I was a fan, exclusively, I went to four to six games a year. When I was a kid, I might go to ten. So, 
mm-hmm. wouldn't be enough. I mean, the broadcasters were, you know, such a such a, a more direct relationship than the park was. And mm-hmm. I'm not, look, I grew up in Candlestick, which is considered, you know, maybe the worst park in Major League history. And I never loved the game any less. Yeah, given given the uncertainty about the broadcaster's future, assuming you can't sign him up to a lifetime appointment, you probably take the any active player at their current contract status and you go get Chris Bryan or, you know, whoever, the mm-hmm. best the best young player in baseball, and then you get to watch him for at least several years and maybe he becomes a, a franchise player and you keep him and you get to see his whole career for two decades or something. But that that's probably I could I could see the case for GM if you if you if you knew that he was that much better then he could just keep getting you that player over and over and then maybe you could get more player value than you could just by taking any one player but it's hard to say and there are so many good GMs that seem to be available potential good GMs so I think it's the active player and mm-hmm. barring the the Vince Gully foreknowledge I'd accept arguments for all four, but the stadium the least of all just because of it doesn't fit into my lifestyle. But I, I could definitely see arguments for the other three. Yeah. All right. Good question. Okay. So emails, podcast at baseballperspectus.com, Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You can leave comments on behalf of Sam and you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. We will be back.